We never solve on bright, sunny days when everyone feels comfortable. We always do it on dark, stormy nights when our backs are against the wall. That's when we write our new constitutions. That's when we start regulating the national banks or creating a federal currency or creating social security. You name it, right? Whenever we come up with these huge new ways of shaping our our national community is always at a time when it seems like the least likely time to do it. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Thanks, Niels. And uh, welcome, everyone. So our guest today is best-selling author and renowned historian Neil Howe. Neil is the man who coined the term millennials to describe the generation that, as you're about to discover, is going to be exceptionally important to all of our futures. Neil's the author of a new book called The Fourth Turning is Here. The book was published only a few weeks ago. It's already on the New York Times bestseller list. Neil's idea is that modern history moves in generational cycles that last about the length of one long human life. Each cycle has four eras, what he calls turnings, and what matters for all of us now is that we're midway through a fourth turning, the last era, which is a time of exceptional upheaval and conflict. To give you a sense of just how important fourth turnings are, the last one occurred during the Great Depression and World War II. Before that was the American Civil War, and before that, the American Revolution. The good news is that a society that successfully navigates a fourth turning emerges reborn, more equal, more optimistic and more united. So um, that's that's an ambitious agenda for the next hour. But hey, four turnings are all about meeting challenges, so we're going to give it a go. Uh, Neil Howe, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Kevin. It's uh, great great to be here. Um, and you're right; you've kind of laid out a big agenda there. <laughs> so you know, you start the book by talking about how cycles have always been fundamental to human life. For ancient people, it was the calendar cycle that mattered. But for modern people, the cycles are longer. They're driven by the public mood, which in turn is is kind of driven by the human life cycle. So each of these long cycles has four eras that you call turnings. 
each last 20 to 23 years. And we're in a fourth turning now. And we're going to spend most of our time talking about that. But you've also told me, hey, you know, to understand how a fourth turning works, you need to understand how we got there. So I'd like to maybe start there. Let's work our way through the eras, maybe talk about what characterizes them, how one leads to the other. So, you know, natural place to start is the is the beginning. Um, so what what is a first turning? What what triggers it? What does it mean for society? And maybe if we could sort of frame that by talking about the first turning in this cycle as kind of the, to, to set the example. Yeah, we we can talk about turnings and then and then talk a little bit about generational succession, which is kind of driving it. And and actually to sort of turn this around, um, uh, Bill, Bill Strauss and I originally got involved in this work by looking at generational differences, not by looking at cycles in history. So uh, kind of looking at how we got into this is, is really looking at, at the driver behind it, which is generational differences. Now, the, the way, the way we, we looked at this in, in our earlier books, certainly in this most recent book, uh, the first turning is a generational era that follows a crisis, follows the resolution of a, of, of a fourth turning, right? Um, a, a crisis which redefines the country, uh, redefines the republic kind of constitutionally in its outer uh, it, it's, it's outer shape, it's politics, it's economics, uh, it's, uh, it's constitutional arrangements. And the last, uh, first turning we recall, uh, is the period that came after World War II. These are the, these are the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John Kennedy. It was a period when institutions were strong. Individualism was sort of weak. Uh, there was a strong ethic of social conformity. And this was a, I'm talking, describing here a social mood which not only uh, informed our institutional life uh, and our kind of legal system, but just our very way of relating to each other. You know, it was kind of how we, what we expected of each other. It was, a, it was a world in which people were pretty modest about what they thought about themselves, right? Uh, and people were, were taught and agreed to, um, to, to make a lot of effort to fit in with the needs of others. In fact, that was... Uh, that was taught in schools sort of infamously in the memories of a lot of boomers. You know, boys were taught to be wage earners and, and girls were taught to be homemakers. And I mean, it was sort of like a, a colony of youth social insects, sort of a bee colony. In fact, it's interesting. They, they, the image of a bee colony or that kind of organization comes up a lot in first turnings in history. Uh, there was uh, one of the early first turnings we had, which is after the the, the late um, uh, uh, 17th century period of, of revolution and war called the Augustan Age. Of course, at that time, the American colonies shared the culture of Britain, of England at the time, and uh, they were in their Augustan Age. And the Augustans talked a lot about, you know, bee colonies, ants, everyone, you know, everyone had their duty and every, everything fit together. A very, what we today in retrospect, kind of neoclassical way of looking at society and this was popular at the time. Conformity was uh, prized, uh, and there was a rising ethic of equality and a rising reality of equality. Income and wealth was becoming increasingly equal through and the is, 50s. Is all that, that what you're just describing? The emphasis on you know community pulling together equality. It's because in each of these turnings, 
the fear of the last turning hangs over it. So, so it's, it's one foot back and you know, we needed these characteristics. Right. Right. Because how did we, we just barely managed to survive the crisis where we're going to make sure that our institutions are really strong, right? Because of the fear of the crisis. So it's that. And, you know, we set up this kind of society in which uh, individuals may have feel constrained, but society itself is able to solve huge problems is a great sense of progress is a great sense of being able to solve. I mean, that was a time in which, uh, we, we spent a lot more on defense than we do today as a share of GDP, but we always managed to balance the budgets. In fact, we had surpluses and, uh, we were able to build, uh, interstate highways and, and ultimately launch, uh, uh an expedition to get a, get a, a man on the moon and, and miracle vaccines and all kinds of other things. And it was a period of rapid standard of living growth, uh, extraordinarily rapid, you know, during that period. So, so we see this, we have this um, crisis that threatens to, you know, dismantle society. And then there's people pull together, they solve the crisis. And then that ethic allows them to kind of reimagine, you know, rebuild society afterwards, in part because there's still a fear that another crisis could emerge. Yes. There's always the, there's always the fear of what happened just before. And it, it sort of hangs over each. Uh, so each era is, is a trajectory, right? You're trying to escape the fear of what you were just in. Now, the awakening is a period when uh, people try to throw off all the social conformity. They try to throw off all these rules and regulations, all the social discipline. Why are we doing all this stuff? That's the second era, right? The awakening yes, is, this is the, the second the, turning. The summer season, if you will. So the spring season to the summer season, this would be the uh, the 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 summer solstice. You know, the, the days are long. And um, but there's a time that that in our last experience, you could just call this the consciousness revolution, which extended from the mid-60s up until the early 80s, was a time that really started uh, in inner cities and college campuses, uh, and particularly, you know, getting rid of uh, police authority, male patriarchy, I mean, you name it, you know, all, all the kinds of um, conventions and limitations that people had on their personal and cultural behavior. And it really ended by the late 70s, early 80s, with uh, kind of more on the conservative end of the spectrum of getting rid of uh, taxes and regulations. That was the area of sort of tax cuts and deregulation. I actually started in Carter before it went into the Reagan administration. But you can see from first to last, both on the right and the left, the success of that awakening period was the throwing off of all kinds of social obligations. We just, everyone wanted to do what they wanted. Uh, we didn't really care about uh, necessarily saving for our kids anymore. So deficits became uh, standard. Um, obviously we're going to cut cat taxes, but maybe we wouldn't be so rigorous about cutting benefits to ourselves. Right. I mean, you see what I mean? Um, and, and increasingly too, we no longer wanted to make institutions big and lasting anymore. And, uh, one, one important part of the boomer critique was that their, their, their world war II winning parents were trying to build institutions too big and too strong. You know, that was their problem, right? Uh, they were too civic minded. And so let's stop building those dams. Let's start, stop straightening those rivers. What's that Army Corps of Engineers doing anyway? An Apollo moon lodge? No, after about 1973, 74, no, let's just stop spending money on that anymore. You know, let's, 
let's turn toward the inner, right? Let's turn toward the inner world and solve problems here at home. And that collapse of interest in the, the outer world, toward the inner world, is, is a constant refrain of the awakening period. We saw this during the age of Jackson in the 1830s, early 1840s. We saw it during the... So halfway in between these great civic crises you talked about, Kevin, are the great awakenings of American history. So that's the other, that's the other solstice, right? So the the fourth turnings are the are the are the uh, the shortest days of the year. The awakenings are the longest day of the year. They're the summer season. They come roughly halfway in between the the fourth turnings, and uh, can very conveniently in American history we number them. We call them the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and many call. This period of the consciousness revolution, America's you know fourth or fifth great awakening, depending on you want to start your count with the uh, with 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 John Winthrop in the in the 1600s or Jonathan Edwards in this in the 1700s. But there we are, and um, so then you have this period which which we become a much more individualized society, a much less governed society, a much less uh, conformist society, and a much less in- increasingly a less equal society. One of the Things that boomers hated most, and by the way, it's the it's the it's the generation coming of age which often gives best expression to the mood of the of the era. When we think of the of the American High, we think of the Silent Generation, who are the children of World War II, coming of age um, uh, with their you know gray flannel suits and you know going to work for Rand and big corporations. They they wanted to do things in groups. Uh, they're very much interested in their job security. On, uh, in the early 50s, the first questions in job interviews were about their pension plans. Well, this changed, right? You had boomers now coming of age, and they were at the cutting edge of obviously throwing up all these limitations. And one of the things the boomers hated most, as I was saying, was the middle class. It was too big. It was too powerful. In a way, America had become too equal, right? We were too conformal. We all... We, Pleasant Valley Sunday with charcoal burning everywhere was the biggest nightmare for boomers. And you see the contrast here. Today, millennial generations would love to join the middle class. I mean, their question is, where is it? Where can I sign up? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I've got kids who are millennials. And, you know, that's a refrain I hear all the time, not just from them, but their their friends. Is this almost, what the fear might not be it, but this sense of, being stuck, that there is there is no way into the middle class. The doors and there's are no closed. way to, to to join their their peers in some great sense of common cause, right? Boomers fled that. That's the last thing that boomers wanted. And in fact, even living together, I you know I often point out to people that today, of course, everyone is is living in extended families. Millennials, most of all, they're all going back to live with their parents, even in the late twenties, early thirties. In, in, in the 1970s, no one wanted to live together. And I often point out the 1970s experienced the largest decline in the average household size, meaning the number of persons per household. Uh, seniors were leaving home to go and live in you know, the leisure world in Arizona, and boomers are leaving to join Wheeler Ranch Commune, and the generation in between were all getting divorced. <laughs> and so we had this just this huge decline in the size of the household. And so, so that's 
where we ended up in a much more individualized, less supervised, less regulated society in which big civic projects no longer really worked very well anymore. And that enters the fall season, the third turning, which is much the opposite of the high. You know, the high institutions are strong, individualism is weak. The fall season, which really started with the mid-1980s and went all the way up to the GFC, the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, this was a period in which, uh, you know, individualism was strong, institutions were weak. And if you think about third turning decades in American history, you think of decades of, of weak civic authority, cynicism and bad manners, kind of like the, the, the roaring 90s or the roaring 20s or the 1850s or the 1760s. They're very similar in that regard. Uh, you had the children of awakenings who were coming of age into young adulthood, like Generation X, right? And really defining that era. And uh, history shows that these fall seasons are in turn, this brings us full circle, full circle here, uh, it brings us to the fourth turning. And in a fourth turning is when um, we begin to enter these, these multiple crises. And ultimately, uh, by the end of this era, we enter a period of, of increasingly severe organized conflict in which uh, new institutions are born and a new, finally, a new common republic emerges uh, in which, you know, competitors are destroyed and uh, a, new, a new republic is emerging and uh, uh, emerges by the resolution of it. Well, I guess I have, I have two questions. One is the the fourth turning is, as you say, characterized by by conflict. Is that and the third turning is what you call the unraveling. So the the is it the individualism, the kind of looking after yourself? Does that lead to this conflict because society starts to fragment? Yes, it leads to the opposite. So one way to think about it is that in the in the awakening. You enter an awakening with society supplying a large amount of order, right? It supplies a large amount of structure and order and constraint. And of course, during the awakening, society demands the less order, but society keeps offering it and giving it. And that gives rise to the conflict of the awakening, which is basically a society in which individuals in that society, particularly the young, are um, rebelling against all of this order that society is providing, right? The crisis, the fourth turning, is much the opposite. You go into the fourth turning, society supplies almost no order and no, no, no security, and society increasingly wants order. And that, that's what I think is fascinating about the millennials, is you, you say they crave order. M millennials want all these social guarantees. Uh, they don't want all the risk that boomers wanted. You know, the, the whole idea of, well... We shouldn't have uh, a, a defined benefit plans. Let's have defined contributions. I'm free to contribute if I want. If I don't want, I don't have to. And, and who knows where they'll end up. I mean, boomers are very cavalier about risk-taking in their own lives. In fact, almost every measure of risk-taking raced upwards you know, among youth during the 1970s. And interestingly, have boomers have grown older. The, the measures of risk for older age brackets has increased as they've grown older today, even among seniors. You know, we... We, we, we worry about, you know, deaths of despair and STDs and 
uh, deaths on motorcycles. I mean, things we, we never used to worry about with seniors before. Well, boomers have, have remained this generation of, of risk takers living solo, not really caring if they know their neighbor, or they have a spouse or anyone looking after them. These are actually problems that local, you know, state and local governments worry about their senior populations today. And I think millennials are really looking in the other direction. Uh, millennials want to have millennials themselves. One thing that was noticed very early among millennials is their peer orientation. You know, the, the idea they're very community oriented social media. They flock to because they love this place where you live in a fishbowl existence and everyone can see what you're doing and you always get feedback from other people. And, and the idea that of collective security, uh, even in their pension plans, you see millennials basically crowd investing, you know, they're all, they're all in those, uh, target date, uh, ETFs, uh, which, which are just, you know, they're all filled with equities, although they don't like to think they, they own any stocks. Uh, but of course that's what they are, but it sounds safe to them. But the main, the, the great thing about these, uh, target date funds is that they're all tied to the S and P 500 index, right? To the spy. And of course, if the whole thing goes down, they all go down together. So that's great. Most millennials would much rather go down with their peers and be left behind. So, so, you know, it works for them. I, I think, by the way, with Generation X, I think it was very different. Back in the 1990s, Xers are told that most of them were, were destined to be losers. And so the whole idea for an Xer was, I want to be different from my peers. You know, I, I want to be that one person who's the active investor who goes the opposite direction from all of my loser peers. But, but that whole idea of... Um, this great peer orientation among millennials and the idea of wanting a more ordered world. And also I think this turning away from democracy itself, which I think a lot of us find most disturbing. But by the way, this isn't just in America, this is around the world. It's in Latin America, it's in Southern Europe, it's in South Asia. The rising generation increasingly sees democracy as a way of, uh, uh, of being tied to proceduralism, tied to airing and discussion of every issue, but never about changing anything, which is why you see the rise of populist and authoritarian leaders around the world today. Not only is it not primarily in the United States we see this, it's really the United States probably does not as much reflect that trend as many other countries around the world. And there's another thing we can get to, by the way, of how generational cycles are increasingly becoming global. Why is it that so many generations now have similarities across national boundary lines? Well, why is that? Why, why do you think that's the case? Because well, I think it's because the major events are increasingly becoming synchronous, the historical events. Uh, the Great Depression, World War II, which was our last fourth turning, was a fourth turning for most of the world. I mean, certainly all the English-speaking countries, all of Europe, including Russia, at that time the Soviet Union, as well as Southern Europe, you think of India and the partition, you think of uh, uh, China and Japan and Korea. I mean, they, they were all involved. This was a huge conflagration, you know. Um, and then roughly 30, 40 years later, you had a great youth awakening around the world. It wasn't just in Berkeley or Columbia uh, that we saw boomers in rebellion. It was in Paris. It was in Berlin. It was in Rome and Milan. It was with the Red Brigade and the they, they, you know, Andy de Piombi, the, the years of lead in, in Italy, it was, um, was in Prague. You remember the Prague Spring? It was in China where you had a Red Guard generation and the Cultural Revolution 
trying to throw out 2,000 years of Confucian culture. It was in Santiago. It was in Mexico City. In every place, you saw youth rebelling against overly strong institutions that their war-winning parents had built, and it was often accompanied by horrendous uh, massacres of young people. I mean, think about Mexico, you know, the famous massacre in Mexico City in 68 was, it was horrible. I mean, you know, hundreds of young people, students died uh, there. And, and, but this was happening around the world, this conflict, this generational conflict between young people who wanted more freedom from older people who wanted to impose very tough, strict kind of authoritarian institutions. And so my point is, is that this has become more global and I think you, United States and America, for various reasons we discuss, have the longest track record because of how we were set up. You know, originally the colonies and how we were born as a as a nation. We have the longest and most regular track record of these generational turnings. But I think increasingly we see that elsewhere in the world. I want to get to like when the fourth turning started, but I do, I, you know, one thought I had was that with America, you know, people came here specifically so they could have an experience that was different than their previous generation, right? They literally came because they wanted their life to be different, which isn't, you know, it was the, the kind of motivating driving force behind your, your theory. Um, so it kind of makes sense that we see these cycles most clearly in the U.S. Um, relative to, to to different places, but let's let's talk about the current era, the fourth turning. You believe that it sort of started with the global financial crisis in two thousand eight. Well, why is that event so important? Every fourth turning starts with a catalyst, and a catalyst is a huge event which. Uh, uh, discredits existing institutions and their ability to provide security, you know, to their populations, and um, and demoralizes, you know, societies, and 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 leads to this initial period of extreme loss of trust. So, yeah, it's a very individualized world, but we no longer feel very happy about it. Remember, back in the 1990s, the third turning uh, was the kind of the light motif was. Um, was Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. And basically markets and individualism had spread throughout the world and governments would just sort of fade away and we'd be sort of deracinated individuals, nomads, contracting with each other on our computers. And, and that was sort of, that was it. I mean, no great ideas were left. We, we finally figured out how everything was going to happen forever and ever, right? And, and so we had all these myriad choices and, and we would just, there'd be no community left. And it's sort of the ultimate vision of a third turning on steroids, right? And, and you have to think that, that back in the first turning was the first turning on steroids. It was kind of George Orwell's 1984, which came out during that period. But each, each turning has its own exaggerated uh, epitome. You know, in other words, if you just keep on this direction forever, that's where you go. Uh, it's almost as though the generation coming of age just gives rise to more and more generations that are increasingly more exaggerated forms of itself. So the generation after boomers would be even more like boomers. And after that, they'd be like super, super boomers, right? 
That, but that's quite important, Neil, because I, you talk about this in the book of, you know, we have, we're, we're linear thinkers, right? And that's exactly what you're talking about now. It's like, okay, here's what's going on now. Let's just project more of that into the future. And because of that, we're, we're always surprised when that doesn't happen, when there's a cycle, it's not linear. It catches us by surprise and the speed that it happens catches us by surprise. So it's not just that the cycle reemerges, is that it reemerges much faster than, um, than we kind of expect. It, it happens in these, in these increments, which are basically related to the length of a phase of life. Um, Two things happen simultaneously when we exit one turning and enter another, and that is we're both surprised at the change of the mood of the era, and we're also simultaneously surprised by the change in the nature and collective personality of the new rising generation. And those two come together. It's, it's like back when, when boomers finally got to Reagan and mourning again in America, they began to look around and notice things are really different. It was the big chill. Do you remember the movie? Yeah, I do. Remember the big chill, right? And so suddenly, wow, what happened to the revolution, man? You know? (laughs) And then they looked around and simultaneously they saw these Gen Xers. I mean, it was, uh, you know, Michael Jordan and Michael Dell and Michael J. Fox. Do you remember with the Wall Street Journal under his arm and and they're wearing the tie? The young Republican. Yeah. So suddenly, whoa, what's happening here? You know, which I ha- I'm embarrassed to say I was I had a little bit of Michael J. Fox in me, you know, like when I was I started <laughs> university. Well, you know, because it was all about, you know, I grew up with capitalism versus communism, the Cold War. And it felt like, you know, we had constrained ourselves. And, you know, so I, I, I bought in initially to the, you know, the free market, everyone for himself ethos. It took me a while to kind of see the, the problems with that. So I, I fully understand it. Um, so did did the did the GFC usher so in GFC, that kind of- the GFC ushered in the catalyst and and let me just remind you the GFC was very similar to uh, Black Thursday the Great Crash in October of 1929 which was actually also a global crash so you know we've seen this before I mean the October 1929 was the catalyst for the for the last fourth turning and in fact. Financial crashes have been at least somewhat related uh, to the timing of earlier fourth turnings. Um, uh, the, the crash of 1857 had a very interesting relationship to Lincoln's election. He probably wouldn't have been elected without that crash, interestingly enough, because it turned a lot of the, uh, particularly Pennsylvania and some of the big mid-Atlantic states, to uh, made them more more likely to vote for a uh, Republican who was more more in favor of uh, state intervention in the economy, basically. Also, the the, the great crash of, of London in, in 1772 came very close, you know, before the uh, the Tea Party. Uh, and that was caused by actually a, a big famine in India. It's a long story, Kevin, but ultimately to bail out the East Indian Company, uh, the British actually cut the price of tea and allowed it to be imported directly from India into uh, Boston and Philadelphia and all the ports of uh, the colonies without without paying any imports to Britain. And this was designed to, to you know, first of all, bail out the East India Company and as almost a favor to the colonies. And, you know, we'll give you this tea actually cheaper, but we will put a tiny tax on it <laughs> just to preserve the principle. But of course, that wasn't good enough for Sam Adams and all the patriots, right? I mean, they couldn't... 
okay, the T might be cheaper, but it still has the original still sin <laughs> of, of a tax on it. And and but anyway, it was. And, but what really did it was the fact that all of these London banks wanted to call in their loans, was particularly for the planters in the South. Now the planters, you know, can only sell their their tobacco or whatever they were selling or indigo or rice or whatever they were selling. They can only sell it to their London factors, right? So they felt trapped to these factors, uh, and and now suddenly all these banks were calling for specie repayment of, and they were always in debt, right? Because they were always importing lots of, they couldn't, they could you couldn't build any uh, English manufacturers in the colonies. You had to import them. And of course, these are planners, you know, that they weren't as wealthy as, 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 as British uh, nobility, but you know, they, they liked their fine things. So they had to import all the stuff for London. They were chronically in debt. So suddenly what happened was, is that uh, the London bankers wanted payment in gold, you know, gold or silver for all these, the loans, because they want, you know, you call your loans in a crisis, right? And they couldn't. And it uh, no doubt made a lot of these patriots in the South, these rich planters, much more favorable <laughs> to the to the patriot cause, I think, for, for an interesting reason. But but look, every crisis has a catalyst. It, it was the, it was a Tea Party and the coercive acts uh, in 1773, it was the election of Lincoln, and particularly the the Confederate response to it. It was the Great Crash, and the huge change in America that was, you know, causing the, the the later years of the Hoover administration and the election of of FDR and the New Deal. And it was the GFC, and and ultimately giving rise to the second milepost in the in the in the fourth turning, which is the Regeneracy, which is the uh, the, the fact that people move beyond their shock and distrust into beginning to refining themselves as larger groups to try to deal with this change. And very often this comes with uh, realigning elections. Realigning elections in America always occur during awakenings and crises. In every so have the regeneracy in this fourth turning was the 2016? Yeah, it was 2016. It was a Trump-Clinton uh, election. And in that election, we saw the Republican Mar Party turn, I don't want to say permanently, but on a long-term basis, toward populism, particularly populism around um, education as a differentiator. A lot of the Democrats who were, you know, non-college Democrats who had voted uh, for Clinton and Obama became fully in the Trump camp. And the GOP lost to the educated suburban voters, right, who started voting for, for Democrats. And we've just seen that repeated now in every single election since 2022. Uh, uh, it's interesting, political scientists are beginning to talk about the seventh, you know, uh, period of poli political realignment. The sixth was, you know, either, you know, Nixon or, or Reagan uh, back on the, in the awakening and the earlier one was FDR in the early 1930s. You know, you go back, McKinley, Bryan, you know, during the previous awakening, and then you have Lincoln during the Civil War. You, you can keep on going back, but these are all the great realigning elections. They occur during awakenings or they occur during crises. And the ones in crises are the more, most significant because what they always are synchronized with are these periods of sudden, intense polarization. Polarization is always an aspect of fourth turnings. We're surprised by the polarization today, right? Not only are we surprised, I think we're numbed by it. I, I think we can even, you know, we, we have 
problems actually dealing with the polarization. Well, that I think goes back to the, your point of speed, right? I mean, it, it, fe- it feels like it's just, it started and then it gathered strength and all of a sudden we find ourselves 10 years into it or, or however long and it's like, wow, this, is, this, isn't, this is intensifying. It's not going back. And I, you say, or, or I guess the question is, is that polarization a reaction to the lack of uncertainty in the environment that people find their tribe and pull together because it's a it's a way to kind of create some security and you know safety in a in a broader less safe world remember what we talked about before if for turnings the public is order seeking right so of course it wants community and who wants community more than millennials i mean think about fomo Think about fears of loneliness. I mean, you know, and I, you, you just, you, you talk about either, you know, millennial young women or, or young men, uh, uh, you know, loneliness is the thing they, they, they most disturbs, them, right? The idea of being unattached. So the idea of attaching yourself to something, but look, uh, what do the two right now we have red zone versus blue zone, obviously. And, and, and it's so strong, uh, uh, and an affinity. And so hated is the, is the opposite side that people are sorting themselves geographically into different communities. We, we now see elections where only three or four states are, are up for grabs, right? Presidents don't even campaign in most states anymore. There's no reason to. Uh, the number of landslide counties as a share of all counties is increasing. We increasingly regard living next to someone with the opposite political views as the one thing we would most like to avoid in our daily life. It, it is, it is a stronger, we have a stronger um, a desire to avoid that than, than living with someone of another race, another religion, another, I mean, you name any other possible thing, but, but the idea of living, <laughs> where you're looking at dating sites, what is the one thing that people don't want to date? It's, it's someone with radically different political views, much more than anything else socially. So this is now dividing people today, but it was no different in the 1930s. If, if you were a Republican, you, you thought of the 1930s as the red decade. But if you were a Democrat and you were uh, believed in the New Deal and part of the popular front, uh, you thought of the 1930s as the fascist decade. And there are reasons for both names. I mean, uh, fascism was taking over a whole bunch of countries in, in Eastern Europe. It was on the march in Asia. Uh, obviously, it, it was the red decade because a lot of dissatisfied workers and young people were joining the Comintern, the Communist Party, taking their orders from Moscow, including, by the way, the greatest generation as young adults. I think we saw that in the new movie Oppenheimer that came out. It was very interesting. I think it brought to America's awareness the fact that these young Americans who, who you know, all joined the armed forces after Pearl Harbor and conquered half the world we forget that a lot of them had been card-carrying Comintern members, you know, communist members, uh, and many of the most educated of them. Many of them were also signing Oxford pledges, pledging even as late as 1937, never to fight in a war uh, declared by their country because the memory of World War I was so bad. It, this is something, Kevin, that I think is very important, is to understand that when we think about history, we often tell a narrative which is very comforting because we already know how everything turns out. 
So we think about the greatest generation. We think of them as all, all on board with the whole project of World War II and everything that it created from the time they were, you know, little kids. Well, they did have some of that. I think they were, they were like millennials today, a community-oriented generation. They vote, voted by overwhelming uh, majorities for FDR and the New Deal and estimated uh, well over 80% of first-time voters in 32 and 36 voted for FDR. I mean, those are amazing, you know, amazing margins. They did like the idea of a national community and they joined these, uh, you know, WPA and the CCC and, you know, you know, building dams and, and planting trees and all these things that boomers hated them for building later on. But the point is, is that they were a great builder generation, but they also had features of them that rendered them controversial later. Uh, one of them was how late they, they came, they kind of agreed with the idea of going to war. The other was how many of them uh, supported the left, uh, the, you know, the radical left. I mean, the revolutionary left but here's my point. You had one side of America who would, they, they'd call our president Franklin, Stalin, and Roosevelt. And then the other side who, who thought that democracy and capitalism were doomed. In fact, during the 1930s, this is every bit as hopeless as today, even more hopeless. Uh, everyone thought that democracy and capitalism had no future. It was either going to be communism or fascism. It was going to be one of the two. We start hearing that a lot, uh, a lot amongst the younger generation today. I, I, I was thinking as you were talking about the polarization, going back to your framework for how fourth turnings, you know, how how they end or how they, you know, what, what the the kind of peak point is, and you say that it can be that the polarization continues, and then you you end up with a, a civil conflict, civil war, like what like what we had in the eighteen hundreds. Or you can have this quite partisan, divided society that is suddenly met with an existential external threat. And that is so great that it wipes away the internal divisions and unites the country, which is sounds like um, what, what happened in World War II, right? You had a divided country, um, still divided up until maybe even the eve of the war. And then once the war happened, there was this coming together and um, and then, you know, the society kind of um, that, that emerged afterwards retained that, that unity. There's always sometimes, you know, Kyle, uh, a second regeneracy, meaning the first regeneracy was really, you know, FDR's inauguration in 1932. And so you had the two sides, right? But then you had a, a, a second regeneracy later on when FDR was repudiated after 1936, the, the, you know the court packing scheme, and and suddenly the the sit down strikes, the later radicalism, labor radicalism actually alarmed the public, and uh, and then ultimately the most obviously the the a further depression in thirty seven and thirty eight. Uh, so the the Republicans surged back in the elections of nineteen thirty eight, and 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 FDR found himself much more involved in foreign policy, right? And the New Deal then was kind of over. Uh, yet by nineteen forty. America was still in the Great Depression. Uh, Long-term bond yields actually reached their lows in, in 1940, uh, uh, early in 1940. Uh, the, the economy was still deflating. Unemployment was still in double digits. I think almost all Americans would have said, despite the New Deal, we're still in the Great Depression. Well, 
what happened, FDR actually changed his constituency. He shifted away from a little bit uh, the more peace-oriented Democrats in the North, and he shifted to the Southerners, right? So, and on the way, he gave way on a lot of civil rights issues, I should point out. But he did want to bring the entire country together. He had to bring, as as you know, I'm sure you know that the, the Southerners controlled all the committee chairmanships. He couldn't get anything through Congress without 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 the Southerners being on board, and that was a very important part of the Democratic Party, right? And it turned out the Southerners were totally on board with arming World War II. All of those would go, you know, the Southerners love the idea of. Um, protecting the United States militarily. A lot of that spending would go to the South. And so he brought the South back on board and the big change began to happen in uh, the summer of 1940 with the fall of France and the beginning of the Battle of Britain. Suddenly the mood in America began to change. No longer any of those Oxford pledges. You know, suddenly that isolate, we suddenly appeared and felt very alone in the world. And that's when I think most notably, uh, FDR put through the uh, the two Navy Act, the biggest expansion ever in the history of the Navy. We basically doubled the size of the Navy, and we basically started laying the heels of these um, Iowa class battleships and Essex class aircraft carriers. And if we hadn't done it that year, where would we have been in nineteen you know forty three, when America was down to only one aircraft carrier left? You know, by the time we were invading Guadalcanal. Suddenly, these big Essex aircraft carriers became a company. So it's amazing. You think about it in retrospect, right? That early moment when we were able to get that consensus, we started moving in that direction. And and suddenly, what happened, too, was that the left started coming on board the idea of fighting fascism worldwide, right? And that was a huge change. So not only the South, but a lot of the radical North came on board. So we were all on board uh, and even the South, you know, they didn't mind, you know, sending Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union. Well, you know the rest of the story, right? We be- we suddenly became a unified nation against all odds, right? Who would have thought it, you know, back in 1936 that we would do that? Now, that doesn't always happen, as you know. Civil War, it just absolutely went, although there was an interesting... Um, episode that uh, I really in the book, it's interesting by way of example, William Seward, who missed being elected president, he he wanted to be the Republican candidate for president. He was passed over in favor of um, Abraham Lincoln. Well, Lincoln was very gracious. He knew that Seward was a big, powerful politician in New York. He, he appointed him as secretary of state. And Seward wrote the famous April 1st memorandum very shortly after Lincoln had assumed the presidency. Um, and and uh, William Seward basically advised Lincoln, thinking about exactly what we're now talking about, Kevin. Uh, Seward advised Lincoln, I think you should immediately declare war on Spain, England, France. <laughs> Find someone because, to attack. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and it was kind of like, let's give America something to rally behind. So everyone was worried, of course, about uh, Fort Sumter. It was just sitting there. The, the the South hadn't yet fired on it, right? That was that would come about two weeks later. But he, this was his. You understand his mindset, though, right? That's how his mind was working. Now Lincoln, like, like he read it, responded politely, and I think Lincoln said, "That's ridiculous. It's far too late for this. I mean, they've already seceded. I mean, 
it wouldn't work. You know what I'm at that point it was too late. It's interesting, however, that all of our great fourth turning crises have always had a dimension of both the external and the internal in it. Um, the American Revolution was filled with both internal and external dimensions. It was external in the sense that we we're throwing off, you know, King George's authority, the authority of Parliament, but it was internal in the sense that most of the killing was loyalists against patriots within the you know within the colonies, and ultimately, uh, although ironically, the the loyalists, uh, I should say, the patriots ultimately had to bring in France, you know, to to, to defeat to the, the British. War. When, when you think about, Neil, when you think about like our current situation, you and I have talked before and, and also I've heard you speak on other podcasts and you're, you know, you're agnostic or you're not, you know, you, you basically say, I, I don't know if we're headed toward a civil conflict or if it's an external conflict and that's fair enough. Um, I wonder if given the global nature of what we're talking about here, is it more likely that, you know, that the cycle, or is it possible that the cycles align so that we have a, you know, essentially almost a, a replay of the Cold War? We have a, a global conflict where it's kind of the, the democratic West against, I, I don't even know what, what, you could say China, you could say the non, non-democratic rest of the world. Is that a, is that a possibility for, for kind of synchronizing the, the global cycles? Well, you know, I hate to say this, Kevin, that that might actually be one of the better scenarios. <laughs> God. Meaning, okay. meaning, meaning this is that one thing I really worry about is the, and I just say that now with, you know, the situation with Trump, the party's likelihood of what we're going to see in 2024. I mean, look, we're looking at this right, right now. And I'm thinking that one of the terrible things about an intense civic conflict, which paralyzes government, paralyzes the executive branch today, which is different from earlier fourth turnings, is America's critical role of the executive branch in maintaining order throughout the globe right now, right? Imagine what would happen if we had a six-month or year period when the executive branch or the, the the military around the world couldn't function. I mean, just imagine today. Now, in 1860, it didn't really matter. America played no role in the world, and 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 obviously, even even in in um, uh, it wasn't really a danger in the late 1930s, early 1940s. But even then, America didn't really play that much of a role. Although, obviously, our policy toward uh, Toward uh, you know oil purchases uh, certainly influenced Japan. I think to attack to attack Pearl Harbor, but but today our role is so huge that what I fear is that even a a temporary period of incapacity uh, would cause tremendous turmoil in the world. And if extended long enough, you can imagine if a, if a conflict actually broke out. Uh, what always happens in a civil conflict, the losing side always wants to bring in foreign allies, right? I mean, that's how it all works. I mean, that's what the Patriots did. We brought in France to help. I mean, the losers always want to bring, that's what the Confederacy wanted. The Confederacy wanted Britain and, and French help. Um, I think I think Lincoln put an end to that with his victory at Antietam and, and the Emancipation Proclamation. So I think Lincoln dealt with that threat very skillfully. But what I'm saying is this time, 
you know, even, you know, foreign intervention, imagine a world war that doesn't involve the United States. I mean, to me, that would be the ultimate nightmare where, 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 you know, some foreign powers are actually invited to participate in a, in a conflict going on in the, in the United States. That would be some, you know, late 19, late 2020 scenario that I, it would be so nightmarish. I hate to even think about it. Right. You can see the contours of the end in the sense that we talked about the millennials. That's the generation. I said right at the beginning, the generation that's going to be most important for us. And I'm basing that on your, your theory that that's the generation that's ultimately going to lead, take over and lead in the they end won't of the lead. They won't lead, but they will be the motive force. They will be carrying out the orders. They'll be doing all the work. The leaders will be Xers and, and even boomers still. Um, but, okay, so, but it, to me, well, I guess what I was going to say, tell me if I'm wrong here, was that this this desire for order in, amongst millennials could get, I guess what I'm saying when I say see the contours, you get to the point where they're like, that's enough. This disorder has gone far enough. And it's a, I know it's a risk-averse generation, but it's a, kind of like the greatest generation. They finally say, Okay, it's time to to finish this, and we're all in on finishing it. Um, and yeah, that's where cut, the cut cut off all the debate, cut off all the process, cut off all the safeguards, get rid of the guardrails. Um, and and you see that increasingly. Who who wants to have patience with the Supreme Court anymore? Who wants who has patience with the filibuster? Um, just just manage the whole thing like like it were a subsidiary of Amazon or the Pentagon. You know what I mean? And and look, what institutions do we still have trust in? Amazon and the Pentagon. You know, they can get stuff done. So why don't we just get rid of the facade, right? Get rid of the facade, just go for it. Because who trusts Congress anymore? Who trusts any of those institutions? This is very worrisome, Kevin. It, it is true. Look, in any great conflict, uh, society has become more authoritarian. It just goes with the nature of the territory, right? I mean, you have a, you have some urgent thing. You, you have to start making decisions. You have to start exercising triage. A lot of stuff you're just not going to worry about, right? You're really worried about surviving. Uh, Lincoln uh, uh, got rid of habeas corpus. I mean, Lincoln did a lot of things. And he was asked after the, after the war, uh, before he died, and he basically said, look, uh, if I hadn't gotten rid of habeas corpus and a few things were in the Bill of Rights, we would have lost our country and there would have been no bill of rights. You, you understand the thinking behind that. And, and that's where you go in a crisis. In a crisis, you basically make hard decisions. Xers will be making those decisions, by the way. But they'll be motivated by the, the, the millennials' desire for order, safety, and I don't and know. And also uh, living, down, living down their own mistakes. Right. I mean, you know, and, and that too, remember that these, these Xers are raising their kids, their own kids, many of them post-millennials, very protective. Uh, so, you know, a lot of millennials, are, a lot of Xers are raising their kids the opposite of that they, they were raised, right? No, no more latchkey, uh, no latchkey childhoods for them. Uh, Xers know where their kids are 24-7. You know what I mean? It's a, so, but that's the mindset among Xers. It's like, yeah, all this all this uh, freewheeling individual, all this free-range stuff that we experienced was pretty traumatic. And, and I think you think about how they're going to do that. It, it's, I think Xers will be a very divided generation. 
let me say, Kevin, this is actually an archetype. We call them the nomad archetype. And in many ways, they're the most fascinating of all generational types. Uh, they are the children of the awakening. And we see them always emerging with the same collective personality. Cynical, pragmatic, survivalist, getting the job done with not a lot of words. You know what I mean? Very much the opposite of the boomer, what we call the prophet archetype. And, you know, following, you know, the generation of Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau and Walt Whitman, you know, lofty words and lofty expressions, great ideas, feminists, commune founders, religion, fat, you just think of all, all the images that come up uh, to your mind with the transcendental generation. After them came the Gilded Generation of George, George Armstrong Custer and uh, uh, Ulysses Grant and 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 uh, General Sheridan and I mean these were this was a generation of metal and muscle and they got the job done and they were very often very torn internally about their loyalties they didn't know whether to be loyal to the old regime the new regime some of them became radical libertarians never wanted to adjust to this new more powerful social order others put themselves in its service uh, like like George Patton and, and Dwight Eisenhower they. They went along as midlife generals in World War II, forging this new powerful America, getting us through the World War II, obviously. And, and think of Eisenhower afterwards sort of presiding over the first turning and sort of this very avuncular president, uh, sort of proud of this great Leviathan America that, that, that he had created. But fascinating, turbulent story that nomads always have. Their life story is always the most amazing, filled with the huge ups and downs of the economic crashes and then going into midlife and being buffeted by these huge political and civic crises. In many ways, they, they have the most picaresque or adventurous or exciting stories. I, I think the, the rest of the extra life cycle will be a lot like the lost generation and you know their amazing uh, uh, life cycle, the generation that really grew old I entered old age during the 1950s and early 60s. So when we talk about, so you you put us kind of midway through the fourth turning, and you know, I, obviously this is all quite imprecise, but you're thinking sort of a, over the you know, that this era has another, I don't know, sort of eight potentially eight years, something like that to go to, and yeah, I think we're long. dealing with you're looking for a, a full resolution in the early 2030s. So I'm thinking, well, what's that going to mean? Again, not not asking for any specific predictions here, but from from a financial point of view, you say four turnings can be triggered by a a, a crisis, um, which this one was. Um, presumably, we're looking at uh, ten years of increasing volatility in your view in markets, but also, um, I guess that you would expect the go governments to you know, be much more aggressive in their control of markets and their willingness to marshal resources, even private resources to, to fight whatever conflict emerges so that, it, you know, it, it feels like it's going to be a very challenging stage for people who have wealth and investments to kind of protect that. Well, that's, that's, that's part of the greater equality that, that comes at the end of uh, the end of the fourth turning and through the subsequent first turning. I mean, part of the inequality is just the fact that the devaluation of assets or, or the confiscation 
uh, or a distraction of assets by the plutocrats, right? I mean, uh, think of the Civil War, what happened to all the slave owners. I mean, you, you go through and imagine what happened to all the very rich people during the crash of the 30s and then, and then the 40s. The, the other thing is inflation. Government racks up huge liabilities, right? And government can never pay with, with, with current taxation. It always has to borrow tremendously. And inflation is one of the ways of getting out from under those liabilities, either in the fourth turning or, or sometimes in the, in the first turning that follows it. So, you know, that makes uh, nominal fixed income assets very problematic, in my opinion. Because inflation is always, and I say always, a repudiation of those debts. And I would say more than ever today, because uh, our, our liability, our public liabilities are very high even before, you know, any any major conflicts. We're, we're about, uh, what, I think in this fiscal year, we're going to hit 100% of GDP uh, in, in um, you know, publicly held debt. Uh, that's where we were at the end of, the, of World War II. I mean, think of that. We're... We're before that, right? Uh, and in fact, I think there are pros and cons. I mean, if you look at today's fourth turning relative to earlier ones, I think in terms of economic performance, we're obviously better off than we were during the Great Depression. Uh, the Great Depression was obviously much deeper at its, at its you know, it, it's, it was a, an enormously V-shaped recession. But we had a huge like, recovery in, in, in 34, 35, 36, right? But, but I think, obviously, we've experienced less volatility than that. And that is a, that's much better than we experienced back then. On the other hand, I think in some ways we are worse off. The GI generation, as it looked forward into the future, government was still very small. There was enormous fiscal room. In other words, if you wanted to build all kinds of new institutions, you had all this free space to build it. <laughs> You're dealing with federal government that was maybe 5% of GDP, well, you could build it up to 20% of GDP at all that free space, right? You can imagine a growing economy, how much resources I gave you. Today, we're up, we're, we're all full, you know what I mean? And, and what's alarming is, of course, as, 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 as you well know, Kevin, uh, our, our government really isn't so much a government. It's sort of an insurance company with an army, <laughs> As it's often been said, we you know we spend very little money, uh, particularly at the national level, on any civic-oriented purpose. It's all just payments to individuals and an armed force. Well, how are you going to get fiscal room? What happens in every fourth turning? There's going to be triage, and I do think among boomers and Xers, there's going to be a lot of giving up. Uh, this could be required. And you say you actually say that boomers are going to do that voluntarily. They won't do it happily, but I think they will do it. And I think that they will, as a generation, they will give up uh, many of their fiscal promises in order to regain moral authority. Um, and we see that happening repeatedly with these generations. In other words, they don't mind the sacrifice if just just, just so long as their kids don't back down and actually step up to the plate and keep the country together. Um, and in, this is in much the opposite of what happens during an awakening when the trade is in the reverse. During the late 60s and 1970s, when boomers were in the eyes of the GI generation ruining the culture, you know, celebrating selfishness and drugs and sex and, you know, just everything that was disorderly uh, to the, to the, to the, 
to the to the junior citizens who were at that time becoming senior citizens, right? I mean, this was the first generation of senior citizens. And you're suddenly getting all these huge, you know, they're getting all these promised rewards from Social Security and uh, their presidents had just legislated, legislated Medicare and Medicaid uh, and they went through in 1964 and 65. I think the trade-off was this. The GI sensed that they couldn't withstand these new cultural currents from their boomer kids. And so they went off to live in these age-segregated age retirement communities where, where young people weren't even allowed to come near so they could hear their Benny Goodman music and their, you know what I mean? They could they could hear their, their kind of culture and they could leave their doors open and they could trust each other as long as they didn't have to be around their kids. And they let the boomers take over the culture. But in return, boomers are going to give them every ounce of material reward that they had built for all those institutions. So all of the post-Vietnam fiscal dividend went into... Social Security and Medicare. We 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 not only we'd introduced COLA indexing on Social Security, which hadn't been there before, but it was double indexed for a while. So the replacement levels hugely rose, and everyone was okay with that. Even boomers had to be okay because they kept on saying that they weren't into it for, for material things. So what was their argument, right? Uh, they they kept claiming that there were higher values than material values. So. They had to kind of say, okay, it's all right. You can hugely boost our future FICA taxes to pay all these benefits to retirees. And then, you know, finally, by the time Reagan was in the White House, they allowed Beach Boys to play there. Do you remember that's when Nancy Reagan finally? But anyway, so the triumph was complete. The the GI generated all the material rewards. And after all, who could who could argue against them? They had built this whole thing, right? They had won the war. They had built all this infrastructure. So they had the right. And so they, all these, all these GI, GI senior citizens, they all joined AARP and they all voted as a monolith. So they were very powerful civically. And most boomers said, that's okay, but we'll take over the culture. And so now you think it will be, you know, some sense, a similar dynamic where the boomers will be like, it's gonna okay. It's going to be the opposite dynamic. It's going to be the opposite in the sense that boomers will be giving up. They'll be giving mature. up. They'll, they'll, but they'll be acceding to the wishes of the younger generation. In that respect. And, but they will respect, be yeah. keeping values in their own hands. And in fact, I already think you see that happening in the popular culture. If you just look at Hollywood and how much boomers are still present, you know, in movies and, um, uh, and, and just in, uh, just in just in recordings. I mean, ask millennials what's the best decade of music. A lot of them still say the '60s. Yeah, no, it's a bit shocking to to see my kids' uh, playlists in in that regard. They know '70s music better than I do, and you know it's, it's absolutely shocking to me. But as a boomer, when the late '60s, I knew nothing about the 1930s, and I didn't want to, and no one my age wanted to know anything about the music of our parents. As Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, coming of age, he said this in the 1830s, he says, you know, we cared not a whit about anything our parents said or thought or imagined. And, and I think it's the same with that kind of generation every time. It's the transformation of values, which is the focus of the prophet archetype coming of age during the awakening, right? They want to transform values. They don't really care too much about civic institutions. And that really is the difference between awakenings and crises. What, second turnings and fourth turnings. 
we maybe just spend a few minutes here at the end talking about, because we're talking a lot about crisis and um, volatility, but at the end of that, if the society successfully navigates it, is a rebirth. Um, and not only a, a rebirth, but things get done in first turnings. Problems get solved in first turnings that you say were, you know, unimaginable at the end of the fourth turning. So the problems that we look at now and just kind of like, this will never change, they could be solved in a decade or they could be solved in 15 years. Now it will be a a traumatic process, but I I do want to focus on, you know, that that part of your book that, um, you know, societies can, can be and are transformed in ways that we can't imagine. Do you have a sense for like certain issues that we face now that might just get, I don't want to say swept away, that's too cavalier, but th- I'm thinking like homelessness or, or gun violence or, or health insurance, infrastructure, all those things could be vastly different. Here are the big social trends. When you, when you go to the end of the third turning, the beginning of the first turning, right? So if you, if you start just before the fourth turning to just after the fourth turning, how does society change? Think about how America changed from the late 1920s when America was hardly governed at all, you know, in terms of national government, uh, very libertarian society, very freewheeling culture, uh, uh, you know, Hemingway's movable feast and, and uh, all the, the gin fizz crowd with, with uh, Fitzgerald and, and Zelda. And you think about how we changed to the early 1950s, right? Just completely different society. The government's relationship to the economy, um, humanity's relationship to technology. I mean, just everything had changed and, and how the culture changed. So think about that as we move from the, the, the OOs, you know, the, the mortgage uh, uh, bubble, right, to the mid-2030s. So that's kind of the same, that same thing. So here are the big changes. The first is the change from individualism to community. And that's sort of the, 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 the overall shift, right? But here's some of the individual shifts. When we talk about this, when I talk about the fourth turning as a social transformation, the other is from privilege to equality. We become a much more equal society, not just in terms of outward measures like Gini coefficients on wealth and income, but also just the whole social ethic the famous book, uh, the the author White talked about it in his organization, man, you know, the social ethic, you know, everyone being taught to, it was a great thing to fit in, to please your neighbors, please your employees. Everyone wanted to be thought of as being a helpful person. Uh, it's it's amazing to remember that back in the 1950s, the soft drink ads appealed to civility and, and niceness. You know, it was like, you know, uh, have a Pepsi, please. I mean, I love that one. You know, <laughs> it's not like do the do, you know, jerk. You know, but no, have a Pepsi, please, or be sociable. Has a Pepsi. That was actually what a big ad. That it, there was a 1956-50. Be sociable. Have a Pepsi. Well, anyway, you couldn't imagine. But you, my point is, it's culture. It's not just government policy. It's what people expect to happen. The next thing is the change from defiance to authority. Leaders authoritate, and people follow. Uh, we remember back in the 1950s, this is one thing that progressives might like about the 1950s in retrospect, is that people trusted the experts. They actually did what they told them to. You know what I mean? It's like amazing in retrospect. You had a weight coach, you had a credential, and people actually you know, did it. 
uh, because that was important to survival at a time of, of crisis, right? That was the lesson learned. We go to deferring social problems to permanently investing in alleviating them. So that from deferral to permanence is huge. And I think that's the idea of creating a new republic and suddenly the huge new infrastructure, not just, you know, we rebuild the outer world from scratch and to not just to solve current problems, but to avoid future problems. Remember after World War II, we, we, we didn't just win the war. I mean, we created the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, Bretton Woods, I and mean, we just created all these institutions to forego further problems, right? and to manage a global system that would provide prosperity for our kids and grandkids. It worked for decades, right? And that provided this enormous amount of prosperity that all of us grew up experiencing. But this idea of solving permanent problems and using crisis as an excuse to do that is one of the most counterintuitive things about fourth turnings. We never solve our problem, our biggest problems, we never solve on bright, sunny days when everyone feels comfortable. We always do it on dark, stormy nights when our backs are against the wall. That's when we write our new constitutions. That's when we start regulating the national banks or creating a federal currency or creating social security. You name it, right? Whenever we come up with these huge new ways of shaping our, our national community is always at a time when it seems like the least likely time to do it. And finally, in the culture from irony to convention, and that's why the culture of the 1950s seems so utterly different, you know, from the culture of the 1920s. Uh, so cloying almost, right? I mean, you remember the, the, the doo-wop music and, and uh, sophisticated uh, essays by young writers who are trying to fit in and, and say something cute. A, an incomprehensible decade culturally when we tested when young people did test the limits of the culture, but they did so in surprisingly modest ways through uh, Bauhaus or sort of, you know, new design architecture or, or, or beat, beat poetry or, you know what I mean? It, it was testing the waters very carefully. Only later on during the awakening, all the floodgates open, you know, and then, and then, but that's typical of these periods. And, and in the last part of the book, we, I talk a lot about first turnings and what they feel like. And I would say that first turnings and what they achieved, first of all, there's no such thing as a good or bad turning. You know, it's always a compromise. You know what I mean? It's, it's always you're, you're, you're foregoing some things to get other things, right? Uh, obviously, a period of greater conformity when people feel they have to fit in, there's a cost to that. You know what I mean? Um, uh, and a lot of us wouldn't like living in that period. I think a lot of, a lot of us who are going to be older then might, might, you know, have second thoughts, might have difficulty adjusting to that, but it's, it will be a period when the younger generation will feel energized, uh, very optimistic, uh, just as the GI generation did in the 1950s, they felt they were, they were building a new world and they had absolutely no question as a generation, this was vastly superior, uh, to, to the one they had experienced as children uh, or coming of age. And these are the new golden ages, Kevin. Uh, if, if, any, if any age could merit the age golden age, you know, it would have been the period after the American Constitution, the, the era of good feelings, you know, with James Monroe and, you know, presidents, you know, renominated uh, and, and, and elected by acclamation. 
or the period of um, the Victorian high of sort of uh, industrial progress and conformity after the Civil War, uh, or, you know, the American high. Obviously, there's a lot of things in retrospect we think were costly about that, particularly the seeding of, of, of individualism to conformity, a lot of the social problems, sexism, racism, among many of them that we look back on and we think, oh, that's, that's a terrible cause. But in other ways, they were, they were very important. You know, even, even as I point out, even in the area of sex and race, they, they're sort of ambiguous. Non-whites actually enjoyed tremendous economic standard of living gains in, in the late 40s, 1950s, and early 60s, not just in absolute terms, but relative to whites. I mean, there was an absolutely unprecedented prosperity and it ended with, uh, that era ended with the, um, the Civil Rights Acts of, uh, of, of 1964 and 65, which finally was an attempt to guarantee uh, the kind of equality which had been promised uh, by the 14th Amendment, but never actually enforced in America. And sometimes I ask people, would we, would we, would we legislate the Civil Rights Act today, right, with, with the degree of... Um, with partisanship in America, sexuality is actually another interesting case because uh, today we talk about, you know, millennials often talk about the problems of sex in their own life. Uh, one thing we could say is that the, the grainy Ed Sullivan era, Kevin, is that young people are certainly more enthusiastic about sex back then than they are today. <laughs> you know, young adults were doing a lot more of it. Uh, so well, it, maybe it, if uh, maybe if the only alternative was watching Ed Sullivan, um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, you couldn't even see what Elvis was doing beneath his waist, exactly. But there's no question that turnings involve trade-offs, and that one thing that we focused on, particularly in the unraveling, and when when Xers were going to see uh, Pleasantville, you know, the movie which made fun of the 1950s, I think very effectively. It was a very funny movie. Uh, is that we learn to become very good at focusing and achieving uh, inner perfection. You know what I mean? Knowing what we were about and being very successful in our own personal lives and, and, and becoming very, very good at sort of self-actualizing your own personal potential. But one thing that we sense that we're very bad at today is becoming actual competent communities. <laughs> They're actually capable of carrying out common tasks, actually just forming livable communities and actually creating livable spaces, you know, that are nice to live in and communities where you feel safe and comfortable living with others. And I think that it's in that respect that we miss something of what people were able to do uh, during, during the first turnings in American history. And that's how the cycle turns, right? There's a yin and yang to this. Uh, and and what we most miss, uh, we're likely to get back in the not too distant future. Well, Neil, I think that's a great place to leave it. I, I really appreciate you um, joining us and and bringing your just vast knowledge of of, of history and and um, generational psychology. You say in the book that there's nothing worse than a fourth turning, except not having a fourth turning, and that's that is the yin and the yang. Um, so the book is, is great. I really recommend it. And, 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 you know, you, you talk about conflict, but you also talk about, you know, what the, the good stuff that, that could potentially 
come out of it. So um, once again, thanks so much for us, uh, for joining us and uh, really wish you all the best. Great. Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and with that, I will pass it back over to uh, Niels. Thank you so much, Neil and Kevin, for a very insightful conversation about one of the most important topics we currently face, namely how we will experience the last part of the current fourth turning and prepare for the awakening that will follow. Of course, the conversation was also focused on the similarities between the generations that went through the last fourth turning and how it will be my own two wonderful millennial kids that will be part of the generation that will build the world up again after we've gone through the destruction that lies ahead. From an investment point of view, those of you who have followed the podcast for some time will know that I also fear that interest rates and inflation can go much higher than most experts believe, so it was interesting for me to hear that this is also what Neil believes based on all his work. Finally, as Neil stressed towards the end, the most important thing we can do to prepare for the next 10 years or so is to make sure that we are members of great and strong communities. And I just want to say a big thank you to all of you for being part of the TTU community. It means a lot to all of us who produce the content every week. That's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Neil's and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of both of their uh, excellent books, because if you can tell from today's conversation, so many of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.